If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the book of 1 John. We are in 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 13. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and these fine gentlemen will bring a Bible right to your seat so you can follow along with us. 1 John chapter 5, verses 5 through 13 this morning. I had an interesting encounter first service this morning. We had some new people at the church, and I went up to introduce myself, and they told me that they're uh, from the church in Hemet, California. And I said, well, that's the church that my in-laws go to. And, and they said, yeah, they just moved out here. I said, well, I grew up in that Fontana area. And they said, uh, well, we know people from Fontana, relatives. I said, you do? Who? He said, well, our last name, their last name is Ferris. I said, well, my mom's maiden name is Ferris. I said, uh, her name is Ann Ferris. I said, you're Tommy? It was, <laughs> it was our, my second cousin I hadn't seen in 42 years. <laughs> and they moved here. I was just blown away. I said, whoa, we're related. Yeah, so it was just, uh, not only did it come from my in-laws church, but they're my cousins. So it was, uh, it was awesome. It was just, it was a lot of fun. So, um, Anyways, 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 5, John writes, Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of man, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, And this life is in his son. He who has a son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the son of God. The title of my message this morning is the blessed assurance. Let's pray. Father we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together in this place. We thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, as you breathe life into your word, into our hearts, Lord, we know that it changes us, it draws us closer into our relationship with you. We are a blessed people as a result of it. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, Father, if there's anyone here that does not yet know you as their Lord and as their Savior, they've not surrendered their hearts and lives to you, they've not had their sin dealt with through forgiveness and repentance, Lord, would you speak to their hearts in a powerful way this morning? They would know that they know today is the day of salvation and come to know Lord and Savior. Bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was a kid, and those of you that are older may remember this, they had a show on TV. I think it was called the Art, Art Linkletter Show. That might have been called Kids Say the Darndest Things. There was a, a reprieve later on in the 90s. But on one of the shows, Art is talking to this little boy who's drawing this picture. So he asked the boy, what are you drawing? The small boy replies, a picture of God. 
Well, the leak letter tells the young boy that no one knows what God looks like, to which the boy confidently responds, they will when I get through. (laughs) What is God like? Simplest answer, Jesus. Jesus is the picture that God has drawn for us in order for us to understand what God is like and God's word is given to us so that we can know him personally. And yes, there are certain things in life that we all know. Like you don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't spit in the wind, don't pull the mask off the old old ranger, and you you guys are old. An old Jim Croce song. I used a, I used a reference last week to uh, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. And about two days later, my son Joey came up to me, he's 25, and says, I realized that was a reference to a song. And so I looked it up. It was an old song. Yeah, it's an old song, Joey. You know, sometimes I don't think we know as much as we think we do. And sometimes I think we, we miss the obvious. There's a saying that goes, one thing, you just, one thing you know for sure, and that is you just never know. And that's great when it comes to life and the curveballs that life throws at us. But when it comes to the Christian life, that's simply not true. For the Bible declares there are certain things that we absolutely can know for sure. And the, the fact is John has been writing to us about those certain things that we can know for sure. For example, in chapter 1, verse 4, John said, And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. God wants you to know that you can have a heart full of joy. He wrote in, in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. See, John wants us to know that God has a sin prevention program. Wants us to know that. John writes in chapter 2, verse 26, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. See, John wants us to know that there will be false doctrines and false teachers trying to lead us astray. And now John writes this in verse 13 of chapter 5, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now remember, John's combating the the, the Gnostic heresy that being taught at the time. The word Gnostics actually means to know. So I believe John is is using a play on words to them mixed with a little sarcasm. In fact, the word know is used some 39 times in John's letter here and eight times in his final chapter. And he said this because he wants us to know that we can know for sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are saved. That we can have that blessed assurance. And we have looked at three tests so far to see if we truly are a child of God, if we've truly been born again, saved. If it's true, then there'll be evidence. And we looked at the obedience test. First John chapter 2, verse 23. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Because it's our natural tendency not to keep his commandments. We're rebels at heart. But John says, if you truly know him, that desire in your heart will be to keep his commandments. Now, you can't do that on your own. It's something supernatural done through the Holy Spirit in your life. We looked at another test, the love test. Remember, he said in chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So we looked at the biblical love, agape love. It's not a way of feeling, it's a way of behaving. It's not what you sense in your heart, it's what you do in your life. 
Loving our neighbor, loving one another, is an evidence of the fact that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And then last week we looked at the belief test. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him, who begot also loves him, who is begotten of him. 1 John 5, 1. Then he wrote in in verse 5, Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So it's all laid out for us. You need to believe that Jesus Christ, the Son, came in the flesh, lived among us, walked among us, died on the cross, rose again the third day, and he's made adequate provision for all of our sin problem and all of our life. You've got to believe that to have assurance of your salvation. Now, to prove all of this to us, John lays out for us one more way in which we can know for sure that we know the Lord, and I will call it the witness test. Now, if you're taking notes, we're dividing the section into three points. Number one, we'll see the testimony. Number two, the assurance. Number three, the invitation. We'll spend most of our time on the testimony. And that's point number one. Picture, if you will, John is in this courtroom scene. He's a lawyer hired to provide proof that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh, come to this earth to redeem mankind. And for us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are redeemed, that you are saved. And so for John to prove his case, he's going to bring forth witnesses to testify. Look at verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. So John brings about three witnesses to establish God's testimony concerning Jesus Christ. The blood, the water, and the Spirit. Now, I believe John is referring to the baptism of Jesus and the death of Jesus, the water being the baptism and the blood being his death. Listen to the way the New Living Translation puts verse 6 this way. It's a little easier to understand. And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's Son by his baptism in water and by shedding his blood on the cross, not by water only, but by water and blood, and the Spirit, who is truth, confirms it with his testimony. So both his baptism... And at his death, the Father really at both times testified of who Jesus is. Both those times, God the Father spoke audibly concerning his Son. We know Jesus was predicted by the prophets, vindicated by his own miracles, verified directly by his Father at two specific times in his life. Again, at his baptism and at his death. And I think that, again, is what uh, verse 6 is referring to. Remember what happened to Jesus as he's walking down to the Jordan River and John the Baptist is there and he's, he's getting baptized. As soon as he comes out of the water, a voice came out from heaven, the voice of his father, verifying the fact that, that Jesus is the Son of God. Matthew three seventeen. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. At the same time, the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove showing the eternal nature of Jesus and his place in the Trinity. So the Father speaking the Son above descending and the Son being baptized. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's the water. Second testimony, again, is the blood, which, of course, is the death of Jesus upon the cross. Think about this. Before Jesus, right before his death on the cross, he's praying there. And in his prayer, in John twelve twenty eight, he says this, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So two times the Father spoke. Listen, John was there at the crucifixion. 
He saw the blood of God's Son drip to the ground. He experienced the earthquake. He saw how the Father attested to the fact that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. In fact, even the soldier who witnessed the whole crucifixion uh, replied, truly this man was the Son of God. Now again, what John is doing is he is combating the false religion and the false teaching of the Gnostics, of Gnosticism. And one of the chief teachings that they taught was that Jesus was not the Son of God, that he was just a mere man, nice man, good man, but just a man. And this man named Serenthus, I brought this up before, the chief Gnostic said at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, the Christ consciousness came upon him. He lived his life, did all the miracles. Then right before his death on the cross, the Christ consciousness left him. He died not as a son of God, but as a mere man. John is saying, no way. And I have proof. I have witnesses. God has given us his testimony that his son is God incarnate. Now, by the way, when you read the term Son of God in Scripture, it's just another term for deity. We know the Jews clearly understood that. Remember the time that Jesus went out, uh, the Jews rather went out to stone Jesus, and, and the reason the Gospel says that they wanted to stone him is because Jesus made himself to be equal with God, calling himself the Son of God. So John is giving testimony that Jesus was indeed God and man, God incarnate, Testimony at his baptism, at his death by the Father, but also at threefold witness, threefold testimony. The testimony of the water, again, at his baptism, he was identified with mankind. The testimony of the blood, his shed blood at the cross was God's blood through the Son of God that has come to to this earth. Then the third witness that we have, the third testimony to really clinch the, the deal is the testimony of the Spirit of God. Again, verse 6, John says, And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. So as we become born again, as we're saved, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. He's given that to us that we might bear witness of Christ. Now we can trust the Holy Spirit's witness because, as John says here, the Spirit is truth. We were not present there at Jesus' baptism. We were not present at Jesus' crucifixion. But the Holy Spirit was present at both. The Holy Spirit is the only person active on earth today who was present when Christ was ministering here and bears witness to our hearts that Jesus is indeed God come in the flesh to save us. Again, John says the Spirit is truth. Now, of course, we know Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. John here is testifying of the deity of Jesus Christ of the Trinity. God the Father, Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all bear witness that Jesus is who he claimed to be, God in the flesh. Yes, Jesus was a man, but he was also God in the flesh. And through the Holy Spirit, we come to understand the joining of deity with humanity at that moment of conception, there in the womb of Mary for all eternity. Because right now, Jesus is a glorified God-man in heaven. The humanity of Christ now is a glorified humanity, but yet he still possesses it in heaven in this exalted state, a glorified state. C.S. Lewis gave this illustration uh, years ago of God becoming a man. Uh, This way, I'm just going to embellish it a whole lot. Suppose you're in heaven and you're loving it. And it's wonderful. It's more than you could ever imagine. And the father comes up to you and says, Hey, my son, I want to take you on a tour of the galaxies. 
and he points out all these different planets, and he brings you to this little tiny galaxy and, 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 and this little planet on there, and, and you notice that it's all populated with dogs. And you think, oh, how cute, little puppies. But then as you look closer, you see the dogs are not so cute after all, with teeth bared and, and foam dripping from their mouth, and they're biting and they're devouring one another. And you say, this is horrible. Those dogs are, are rabid. Lord, you need to destroy them all. Lord says, no, I love them. I want to tell them that I have a plan to heal them, but they won't listen to me because I'm too big for them to understand. That's why I brought you here today. I want you to go down there and tell them I have a, I have a cure for their rabid sickness. He said, okay, if you put it that way, sure, I'll go down. But then the father says, wait, there's more. If they're going to listen to you, you need to become like them, a dog. So he said, oh, let me get this straight. So you want me to become a dog and tell them you have a plan for their life to cure to heal them. Yes, says the Lord. But there's just one more thing. You see, they're not going to listen to your message. On the contrary, they're going to turn on you. They're going to rip you to shreds and they're going to kill you. Now, I'll resurrect you, you know, with great glory and honor. But from that point on, you'll be a dog forever. What do you say? I have to be honest. I would have a hard time saying whatever you want, Lord. <laughs> but in reality, Jesus becoming a man is a far greater step down than you or I becoming a dog. That illustration just, just cuts it way short. And his descent from a lower step than we will ever comprehend this side of eternity was to a lower step than we'll ever comprehend this side of eternity. Granted, he is resurrected. Granted, he is glorified, but he remains in that glorified humanity in order that he might pray for us as a compassionate high priest and fill the hurts we're going through right now. Great is this mystery, incomprehensible is his love for us. All that to say that Jesus was divine both at his baptism and his crucifixion and the Holy Spirit bears witness to both. We've seen the witness. Now, we need to address verse 7 in your Bibles, verse 7, we read, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Now you may be going, I don't have that verse in my Bible. I'm looking for it. It's not there. Let me tell you, it's not in a lot of translations. If you're using a New American Standard, you're not going to find it there. Now the King James Version is based on the Textus Receptus Manuscript, which is another name for the Greek New Testament that actually includes this text. And we use the King James, New King James, what I teach from. It's in the New King James from. Now let me say this. This verse is not saying anything that is unscriptural. But it is a text that is questionable. Uh, and how it got in the Bible, we're really not sure of. But what it is saying, what, what you're absolutely sure of it, is it's, it's absolutely scriptural. It's absolutely true. Because what it teaches is the doctrine of the Trinity. Because if you don't want to accept this verse as being authoritative, that's fine. That's not a problem. There, there's plenty of other verses, other scriptures that, that describe the Trinity and is taught in scripture. Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. There it is. That's in, in, in your Bibles. Galatians 4, 6, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. 
plenty of other places. John 8, the story of the woman taken in adultery. Mark 2, verses 1 and 2, the healing of the, of the lame man. John 1, 1, John 1, 14. All through the pages of Scripture, we see the doctrine of the Trinity. I just would not use 1 John 5, 7 to prove it. Now, does that mean we fully understand the doctrine of the Trinity? Not at all. I mean, we just have to, by faith, believe it to be true because we have God's Word on it, verse after verse. Here's my point. We are talking about God, and we are talking about our limited understanding. We are finite. He is infinite. And it really doesn't bother me that I can't comprehend the Trinity. I'm I'm glad that I can't comprehend God. If God were small enough for my mind, He wouldn't be big enough for my needs. If I could get my mind around God, He'd be a pretty small God. You say, well, I don't understand. Praise God for that. What a frightening thought that you or I with our pea-sized brain could fully comprehend God. I know all there is to know about God. (laughs) No way. We can't fathom God. We can't fully understand God. But when it comes to the Trinity, we accept it by faith based on the revelation of God's Word to us. You say, well, I don't understand it. So what? (laughs) It doesn't mean that it's not real. You know, there's a lot of things that exist that I don't understand how they work. But I know they're real. Some of our modern technology is absolutely amazing. I can't even begin to fathom how it works. But I enjoy them. You know, I use them. My phone. I mean, my, my son tells me I have way too many apps. And he's right, because I got apps from probably 10 years ago. Lots of them. I mean, I can access my Bible studies from the last 22 years that I've been teaching. All from this little phone. I can, I can read them all. If I printed them out, I could, they would stack up to the ceiling here as wide as the stage. All, all of my studies on this little thing. I can talk on the phone, listen to music, and watch a movie all at the same time in this whole thing. I don't know how it works. I don't know how they do it. The technology is absolutely amazing. But it works. Why? Because I, I, I use it. It does. In the same way, I know that we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Do I understand it? No. Do I believe it? Absolutely. Why? Because there's proof. We have God's Word on it. Again, All that to say, I would not use verse 7 here to prove the Trinity, and I would suggest you not use it when witnessing to Jehovah's Witness because they know that it shouldn't be in there, and so they'll they'll come at you right away. Use the other verses, plenty of other places you can. You say, well, how did it get in our Bible? Well, the speculation is that it was put in the margin of one of the ancient manuscripts, and one of the copies just moved it on into the text. Well, our Bible's all messed up. No, it's not. We know with great accuracy what belongs in the text and what doesn't from a multitude of manuscripts, uh, their evidence. We have thousands of manuscripts. And as they were compiled, we come to a sure understanding of what truly belongs in the text. And I would say as the scriptures were canonized and these issues were prayed over as they sought the Lord over it, I believe that God superintended even the canonization of scripture and even the compilation of these scriptures. And in fact, we know what text the early church fathers quoted. You know, you can just about put together a whole uh, New Testament simply off of the quotes of the early church fathers. This guy said this, this guy said that. You can put together a whole New Testament. Then add to that the manuscript. So much proof. So don't let that verse shake your faith in the reliability of the scriptures. Now, 
Moving on, look at verse 8. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Now, this verse absolutely does belong here in this passage because it brings us back to the testimony that, we have been regard- that we've been looking at regarding God's Son. See, John calls three more witnesses to the stand. Three that bear witness on earth, he says this time. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. So John says we have the testimony of the Father in heaven, but he says there's an also testimony on the earth. What is the testimony on the earth? It's the changed lives of you, of me. Our lives are a testimony. And he brings up uh, the witness. First he says the Spirit bears witness in verse 8. In other words, the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirit, who Jesus is. Paul put it this way in Romans 8.16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the ch- are children of God. So no matter how many people argue with me or point out my faults, excuse me, I know that I know that I'm a child of God. I have that blessed assurance because the Spirit bears witness with my spirit. Secondly, John says, the water bears witness. So when you think about, you know, maybe you're questioning your salvation, Think back to that day, that moment that you were baptized. Went down under the water, you came up looking like a drowned rat. But, but you were thrilled. You were excited. What would, make, what, what would make you do something like that? Well, it's your love for Jesus Christ. It's showing the world what God has taken place in your heart to remind you. Hey, I'm showing the world of my love for Jesus Christ. You're baptized in water. And then the third thing that John says, the blood bears witness. When we come to the communion table, we drink of the cup of the communion that symbolizes Jesus' blood that was shed for us. We are celebrating the work of Christ on my behalf. So the spirit inside of you, the baptism you went through, and the blood shed for you work together as a witness of the testimony of who Jesus is and how he's changed your life. See, it's all about assurance. It's all about certainty, not uncertainty. That's why he says in verse 9, if we receive the witness of men... The witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. That word if is better translated since. Since we receive the witness of men, listen, the witness of God should be even greater. Listen, we do believe, we do take men at what they say. We believe that the witness of men, we trust people. Last year when my doctor came in and said, Mr. Humphrey, you're having a heart attack. We're going to put a stint in your heart to save your life. I didn't say, hold on, where did you go to school exactly? I didn't ask him if he knew what he was doing. I didn't say, oh, come on, doc. I I don't believe you, (laughs) really. You're kidding. I said, no, please go for it now, right now. I trusted that my doctor knew exactly what he was talking about. And I tell you, on a side note, my doctor, Dr. Barron, is a genius, and I'm so thankful that he saved my life. Twice. I mean, I give the glory to God, but God used him to, to save my life, and I tell him that all the time. But my point is, I trusted my doctor. I took him at his word. And we take people at their word every single day. So why don't we take God at his word? I mean, think about, what if we didn't take people at their word? What if when my wife says to me, Tom, I made some breakfast for you. What if I thought, breakfast? Yeah, right. It's poison. She's trying to kill me. I think I'm just going to pass breakfast. I'm just going to head on to work. So I get in my car. 
And my car says, made by Toyota. Yeah, right. I bet some terrorists made them. I'm probably going to blow up as I drive down the road. I'm just going to walk to work. Come to intersection. Flashes, walk, walk, walk. Yeah, right. I ain't going to walk. If I walk across the street, I'm going to get... You see, we, we take people at their word. Why don't we take God at His word? That's what John says. You receive the testimony of men, but you need to receive the testimony of God because it's greater. But sadly, there are people today, they're just proud of the fact that they won't believe anything that they can't see for themselves. They can't touch for themselves. Remember, think about Thomas. He was the same way. You know, Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection. Thomas wasn't there. Thomas says, hey, unless I can put my hand in his side and feel the nail prints in his hands, I will not believe. And Jesus had to make another trip back just for Thomas. And Thomas believed. But then Jesus said these words in John twenty twenty nine. Thomas, because you have seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It was the late president, Dwight Eisenhower, who put it this way. It takes no brains to be an atheist. Any stupid person can deny the existence of a supernatural power because man's physical senses cannot detect it. But there cannot be ignored the mystery of first life or the marvelous order in which the universe moves about us. All of these evidence the handiwork of a beneficent deity. For my part, that deity is the God of the Bible and Christ, his son. I like that. Now, on a side note, he also said this. Without God, there could be no American form of government, nor an American way of life. Recognition of the supreme being is the first, the most basic expression of Americanism. Thus, the founding fathers saw it, and thus, with God's help, it will continue to be so. With pleading for God, it will, it will come back to it. But here's my point. It's all about Jesus. God's ultimate message is Jesus. God's ultimate pointing to is Jesus. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's the healer of the nations. John calls him the Logos, the Word. He's our hope. He's our King. How do we know we have God's Word on it? In other words, when God has something to say, it's all wrapped up in Jesus. That's what John is saying here. Now, why is that? Again, because it's the Gnostics. They were getting into the believers' heads. And they were twisting them all up. And, and they're questioning, making them question who Jesus was. So John just lays it out on the line. Calls in all his witnesses. He says, you have the testimony of men. You have the testimony of the Holy Spirit in your life personally. You have the testimony of baptism and communion. You have the testimony of Jesus at his baptism. You have the testimony of Jesus at his death and when he shed his blood for you. On top of all that, you have the testimony of God himself, God's word. So if you still don't believe God, then John says this in verse 10, you made God a liar because you have not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. This is one, you can't handle the truth. It's one of those lines. You're calling God a liar. It is the truth you're calling God a liar when you refuse to believe the testimony of God himself concerning his son. On this, Spurgeon said, and I quote, the great sin of not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is often spoken of very lightly and in a very trifling spirit as though it were scarcely any sin at all. Yet, according to my text, and indeed according to the whole tenor of the scriptures, unbelief is calling God a liar, and what can be worse? You see, it's not that you can't believe, it's that you refuse to believe the truth of God, His testimony of His Son, Jesus Christ, and that makes you calling God a liar because you refuse to believe the testimony of God. 
And here's the problem with this. If a person continues to reject Jesus Christ over and over and over again, they can get to that place where their heart is so hardened they can no longer believe. Jesus calls that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Mark 3, 28 and 29, Jesus said, Surely I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemes they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. See, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life is to draw people to Jesus Christ. If you reject that work over and over and over again, then you're committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And you cannot be forgiven of that because you didn't receive the forgiveness of your sin through believing in Jesus Christ. So therefore, you are subject to eternal condemnation, Jesus said. Now, I don't know where the point is when it's too late. God does. But let me say this. Don't push it. If you don't know Jesus, you need to before it's too late. Now, this brings us to our second point, the assurance of salvation. How can you know for sure that you're saved? Blessed assurance, look at verse 11 through 13. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has a Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. This is one of those mic drop statements right there. He who has the Son of God has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life, period. That's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. I think every Christian should have that verse memorized. You know, whenever I have the privilege of leading someone to, to faith in Christ one-on-one, and I love to sit down with them and pray with them, and, and when we finish their prayer of, of, of repentance and inviting Jesus into their heart, this is the first place I turn to. I want you to read this Scripture. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son does not have life. I want to give them assurance of their their salvation. And watch when you show them, man, their faces, they light up. Because I tell them, if you pray this prayer and you really meant it from your heart, if you were sincere, you have eternal life. Your sin has been forgiven. You are now a child of God and you now have the Son. And having the Son, you now have eternal life. You have God's Word. Such a great passage because it teaches the doctrine of assurance. It teaches us how we can know that we know that you know that you're truly saved. Someone pointed out there's four basic categories of salvation. Those who think they are saved but aren't, Matthew seven twenty one. Those who we think are saved but aren't, first John two, eighteen and nineteen. Those who are saved but don't act like it, all of Corinthians. <laughs> and those who are saved and they act like it. See, for those of us that are truly born again, God wants us to have that assurance. That's why he said in verse 11, and this is the testimony that God has given us. We have God's word on us. He has given it to us. Every believer should be able to walk in the assurance of his or her salvation. Because their salvation is not based on feelings but facts. It's based on God's words, not on our fluctuating emotions. Years ago, the great reformer Martin Luther wrote this little poem. For feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. Though all my heart should feel condemned for want of some sweet token, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. 
John says you can know that you can know that you know that you'll spend eternity in heaven because you have God's word on it. And when you put your faith in Christ, the Bible is adamant in saying you are saved. How do I know I'm saved? I have God's word. Now understand, when John speaks of eternal life here, he's not speaking of just quantity. It's not just, just, just uh, existence. He's talking about the quality of life. And that happens the moment you're born again. Not just when you die and go to heaven. It's a quality of life. It's a new dimension of life presently and assurance of eternal life with the Lord. That's why when you become a Christian, man, it's like the sky is bluer, the, the sun is, is brighter, it, it's, the air smells fresher. Why? Because, of, because all that guilt and shame and, 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 and sin has been removed. Jesus took all of it upon the, uh, upon the cross. Now that doesn't mean we're not going to go through trials as a Christian, but, but life is so much more enjoyable as a Christian. Because we have a new dimension, which is fellowship with God. We have hope. See, prior to that, we were all just living for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Let me tell you, that'll never satisfy. People today, they're looking for satisfaction. That's why many play the lottery week after week, day after day. Oh, if you just win the $500 million lottery, then I'll be satisfied. But you read of those that, that have won, and, and their lives are miserable, worse than they were before. Why? Because the void is still there. There's this emptiness in every human heart until you're born again. That emptiness will never be filled. All the money in the world can't bring about satisfaction. You know, people sit around and say, well, if I was just as rich as, as Jeff Bezos, you know, richest man in the world. Do you really think that brings happiness to him and joy to his soul? You say, I don't know, but I'm willing to find out. No, that's not what you say. No. There's no way. There's just absolutely no way that will bring joy to the soul. Solomon was the richest, the richest man in the world ever. He found no joy in riches. But on the other hand, if you take a Christian who has eternal life, and he may not have a drop of what Jeff has, but, but he has the life of God in his soul. What, what joy, what satisfaction, what blessed assurance. Why? Because you know what awaits even though we may die physically, when you have the Lord, Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. As Christians, we never die. We just move. We put in a change of address, pull out the tent stakes, move into that, that new dwelling place, permanent place with the Lord. Just a shift from here to there, and it's just instantly you're in the presence of the Lord. I think, you know, we think, oh, the worst thing that can happen, oh, you know, if I, I would die. Think about it. If you're born again, you have total assurance that immediately you're going to, when you die, you're going to go in the presence of the Lord. How can that be the worst thing that can happen? <laughs> Paul put it this way, to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. For me to live is Christ, Paul said, but to die is gain. Listen, folks, God wants us to know this morning as a Christian that you know that you know that you're saved. Total assurance. Now that does not give you or I the license to sin. And we're going to look at that next week. But, but God wants us to be assured that he who has the Son has life. He that has not the Son has not life. It's pretty simple. You're in Christ. You're saved. You'll have that abundant life, that everlasting life, that eternal life with Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. But apart from him, if Jesus is not your Savior, you will not have that life. One more important thing I want to look at before we get to our final point. Look at verse 13 again. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. 
I like that John says he wrote these things not only so that we would know that we know that we have eternal life, but that we would also continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. I think about Jesus in his last day's letter to the church, the church of Philadelphia. He commended them for having a little bit of strength and for keeping his word and for not denying his name. But then he went on to say this to them in Revelation 3.11, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Listen, because we know, we look around, we know that Jesus could return at any moment. So we as believers, we need to hold fast. We must continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Do not lose heart. Because as a true believer, we will be a faithful believer. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1.23. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. Continue to believe this truth. Stand firmly on it. Don't drift away. Hold the course. Listen, we know this life is hard. Life is unfair. It's filled with with sin and injustice, and it's getting worse. People are calling good evil and evil good. And, and yeah, there are times when good is rewarded and bad is punished, but far too often it's, it's the other way around. And we're seeing good people who suffer. But while it is true that life is not fair, it's also true that God is good and God is a just God and He's a holy God and He loves us. And one day He's going to right all the wrongs. All of those unfair things, unjust things are going to be dealt with once and for all. All of the pain that we experience is going to be replaced with comfort. Tears are going to be replaced with joy. Heaven is where losses are more than compensated for. Let me say that again. Heaven will be more than the losses, uh, more than than compensated for. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen, For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Let me ask you this. Once you're in heaven, once we're in heaven, how long do you think you'll be thinking about the troubles and the trials and the pain that you're experiencing presently right now on earth? I don't think, I don't think it'll even come to our minds. All this stuff, I think it'll be far from our mind. And this brings us to our final point, the invitation Think about this. Next time you're in an airport, notice the difference between passengers who, has, who have a confirmed ticket in their hands compared to those that are on standby. Those who have that confirmed ticket, they're relaxed, they're confident, they're expectant. Those on standby, man, they're walking back and forth by that ticket counter. Hey, have you heard anything yet? Do I have a ceiling plane yet? They have uncertainty. Listen, God offers us the freedom from the burden of uncertainty so we can know for sure where we stand with Him. So let me ask you this. Do you know for sure if you were to die today that you would spend eternity with Jesus? Now there may be a reason why you don't know for sure. Maybe you've never surrendered your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, if you're here this morning and you're not sure that you have full assurance of your salvation, why not bow your heart and head today and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? The invitation goes out to you. Receive Christ today and you can go out of this place a changed person, a new person, a new creation in Christ with the assurance of salvation, believe in God's word and that God's word is true. 
you will have the testimony of who Jesus is. You'll have that assurance that you know him and you'll, be, you'll spend eternity with him. Listen, everyone is going to live eternally. A man is a living soul or a woman is a living soul made in the image of God. And we, we will live on beyond this life whether we believe in God or we don't believe in God. The bigger question is where will you spend eternity? As Christians, we have God's word on it that we have complete assurance that we will be in heaven with our Lord. But if you're not a Christian, if you don't have the Lord, the Bible says you'll be separated from Him initially in a place called Hades, in a place of judgment, and ultimately in hell in a place called the Lake of Fire. Listen, dear people, I pray that we remember that nothing is more important than having eternal life with Jesus Christ, having your sin forgiven. Jesus was born into this world to save sinners. He died on the cross to take your sin and your shame and your guilt away and to give you eternal life. And if you have son, if you have the son, you have have life. And if not, why not? Give your life to him today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And Holy Spirit, as we have studied it, as we have, have read it, Lord, help us to apply these truths in our life today. Lord, help us, not any one of us who maybe have been struggling with the assurance of salvation to walk out of here not knowing that we are truly saved. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that has never committed their life to you, they're not born again, Lord, I pray that they would not leave here without making that first commitment to you, first and foremost, asking for the forgiveness of their sin and being born again today. So, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that they make that commitment to you today. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here you want to make that commitment to follow Christ? You want to be born again today? If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? Anybody at all? This is just between you and the Lord wanting to make that commitment to know Him as your Lord and Savior, to have your sin forgiven and that guilt and shame taken away. Just raise your hand so I could pray for you. Thank you, Father, for your love and grace towards us. Thank you that you've given us your word that we might know you and serve you and love you. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for the grace you've given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.